This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gaming Homework. Rom Stoker. Recommendation Engine Redux. And Saving Marie Antoinette. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of dice. The swish of pizza being spooned onto a plate. <laughs> <laughs> the chuckling of... <laughs> well, it only thuds in Chicago. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's right. Yes, it, it can't be spooned. And the and the chortling of your fellow players as you describe how the pizza sounds in-game. Tell us that you have entered the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, Robin, to punish me for that bizarrely tangled up intro, you have homework to assign to me. Yeah, so the question is, how deep into the pizza and or character generation do people want to go before they get started? So when you're designing a game, uh, game design is largely about trade-offs, is that if you decide to go in one direction with a set of rules, they're uh, given the limitations of your time budget, which are a factor of how many people are going to buy the game and how long you can afford to spend on it before you move something else. You can't create a game that does everything and appeals to every constituency. And so what you have to do is you design, or as in the case of Feng Shui, to redesign games is try and figure out what the sweet spot is of all of your players' and GM's desires and to kind of hit 
the biggest group of people that you can. And one of the challenges here is that that's a moving target, is that a gamer taste changes over time. It changes in a couple of ways. One, that there are things that people used to like doing that they have decided they no longer uh, are interested in doing, and they've shifted their own approaches. And also, as we bring new gamers into the hobby, whether they're uh, sort of our age, but just now getting in, or they're younger generations, and they have different ideas of uh, what's entertaining and what's fun to do, uh, that changes evolve over time. And in fact, you know, then you have sort of revanchist movements like the old school group who feel that, you know, we've gone in the wrong direction, we've gone too far, and they want to yank it back to something closer to their taste profile. So that's one of the things that you are, when you're working on a game, you're imagining what your audiences are and how many people really want to do X and how many people still want to do Y and are there more people who want to do Z. And so one of the things I ran into with Feng Shui too is how many people still want to spend a lot of time building and customizing a character before they play versus how many people would rather just get started playing. And in that game, it made sense to me, especially since that's supposed to be a fast, furious game, to sort of push the envelope toward people who wanted to get started right away. And so the game now basically presents you with 36 different starting characters, and you can customize them a bit over time, but there's no longer that sort of classic one to three hours of homework carefully assembling your character. And, and so it nods to that much less than Feng Shui one did. Uh, Ken, do you uh, sort of basically support the thesis that over time, uh, fewer people want to do a lot of homework before they get started playing? Well, I don't really know that I have enough information to judge that. I think that over time, a larger constituency of people have grown who don't want to do homework. But I think that, you know, as long as the most popular game in the world is Pathfinder, people still seem to love homework. Uh, in terms of, you know, picking from long menus full of exciting things to memorize. Right. And I guess the question there is, has Pathfinder absorbed enough of the homeworky people that if you're designing something that isn't Pathfinder, how much do you want to compete with that and how much do you want to be in a different space? I mean, just as a designer, I don't want to compete with that because it's a lot of work to do that. I, I think that the growth of the audience for the opposite end of the spectrum, the sort of everything is out of a box and you're ready to go type games, it's there and it's real. I'm not sure that I want to make a decision based on those kinds of questions as opposed to what do I think the utility of the actual game is going to need, right? If I think that the game needs to offer an awful lot of possible you know, custom uh, elements and that you, the player, are going to want to pick them as opposed to be given a set of archetypes to choose from or, or templates or backgrounds, I, I think that it might be a good thing to go with a more assemble-it-yourself approach. And, you, and that doesn't have to mean mechanically complex, and it doesn't even have to mean that you list a bunch of things to assemble. I mean, fate, uh, with, uh, if you begin with the thing where everyone has to decide how all their characters met, and then they have to work out all the backstory, and they have to literally make up their stunts, that seems to be a lot more homework than just taking a, a, a template out of a box in, in Feng Shui or All Flesh Must Be Eaten does. And my observation and my sense is that actually that we have always kind of over-represented the people who are really, really in love with uh, manipulating mechanics. Now, that may be another way of just saying that all of those those people are actually a really sizable crowd, and they've all found the games that they want, and they are less likely to migrate out of those games just because of the 
level of mastery you need in order to be good at it. You're, right. Unless, you're not going to draw a hero player into your game by making it more like hero because there's nothing more like hero than hero. Right. But I, looking at the people who have been in and out of my own gaming group over, you know, since the, the mid nineties over time and looking at how many of them really loved to optimize their characters, it's basically kind of one in every group. Except for me, that one has been the same person. <laughs> He's the, still the original, you know, he goes back all that way. And it's great to have him in a playtest group because there are lots of people uh, like him and he'll spot the things that are not price effective or at least, you know, and I don't always agree with him, but I find his input very valuable mm -hmm. in terms of as an optimizer, what crunchy bits attract him and which parts ones he thinks are, are not worth looking at. But if I look at the, you know, just the members of my own group over the years, how many of them uh, sort of enthusiastically dig into that one to three hours of homework versus how many of them sort of, you know, kind of grudgingly did it, but that's not what they enjoy. That's just what they accept as the price of entry. And how many people are still working on their character in the last minute, showing up for the session, not having bothered to go throughout about that stuff, because it just seems like a like an assignment. It seems that uh, I think we kind of think there are more of them than there are, or at least we assume that there are more of them wanting to play other types of games that we then have to sort of bend the design towards. And in part, I think that's because talking about mechanics is something that you can talk about on the internet, that there's a lot more of a grounds to have a discussion over whether double chain attack is hosey or not. You know, that can fill up page after page after page of a forum where other sort of more diffuse discussion uh, doesn't necessarily happen. And people who are into the more story element or just want a faster game and a crunchy game are perhaps also the same people. If you're not going to spend one to three hours uh, happily designing a character and tweaking and optimizing him, maybe you're not the one who also jumps on a forum and talks about role-playing games. You just have your play experience at the table and the uh, people in the designer space don't hear from them as much because they don't have anything that they need to tell us the way that someone who wants a better or worse version of a favorite crunchy bit would. Yeah, I think that that's certainly possible. It, it, it is also very difficult to talk on the internet about something that, that doesn't take you any time to really think about. You know, if, if you're like, you have your choice of 36 archetypes or, or 10 builds or, or uh, some number of backgrounds, in, like in Knights Black Agents, there's only so many times you can say, yeah, I, I think that the hitter, that the muscle wet worker is a good combo. Now you kind of have to move on and, and talk about other stuff. There's in, in a mechan in a less mechanically uh, fronted game, there's less mechanics to talk about. And since everyone's campaign begins differently, it's much harder, I think, to have a common conversation. I mean, you can say we had a really, really great feng shui game or really, really, really great Ashen Stars game, but it's going to be very hard for someone else to have a, yeah, I had that same experience, because they didn't. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed the time that we went down to the planet and uh, met that uh, strange cybernetic creature and fought him. You can't, the next person is not going to go, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? There's, there's no grounds for a big, long uh, discussion the way that uh, if you're really passionate about how crunchy bits work, there's you know, you can spend a, a lot of time uh, focusing on that. And uh, I guess that also sort of plays into the extent to which uh, you are uh, really emotionally attached to having 
a an addition war is you know there's partly an ideological aspect to it but it's also because you don't like the way the crunchy bits work in uh, the version of D&D that you're disparaging and you like the way that they work in the one that you are using in both cases those are highly customizable you know every version of D&D is super customizable and crunchy but there's uh, certain versions of D&D that will think the way that you think and use a sense of logic that you find useful in order to build your game experience around. And so I think even those things that we sort of perceive as being really huge in the gamer popular imagination, if you then uh, think of, you know, your aggregate group of players over the years, how many of them were passionately engaged with liking one edition over the other, again, it's a much smaller number than the number of players that I've had. And it's the people who are into the mechanics again and love to optimize and want to optimize in a certain way or run games according to a certain logic. Yeah, um, but uh, but again, that sort of moves us out of the world of individual character builds. I, I think that one of the fun things that you can do in a game where there are uh, strongly defined archetypes or, or less customization is you can do tweaks. So you get you get tweakers and maybe... As a compromise, although as a, as a designer, I'm instinctively opposed to it, uh, maybe as a compromise, presenting something... And I think in Ashen Stars, uh, you did a pretty great job of, of a compromise between plug-and-play and, uh, and tweakable, and I basically modded that for Knights Black Agents, where there's the backgrounds that don't change, but there's enough spare points that you could uh, you know build your own background or you could, or you could add things on and off. I, I, I think that there has to be some degree of that available because even in the most pre-gen circumstances people will balk about being given here is your character here is their sheet here is everything filled out for them uh there is literally nothing that you add to it except a name and pick a gender uh, I, I think that's something that, that people still uh, bridle at yeah there needs to be some way of, of entering into an, a, an imaginative uh contract with that information so that you then add something to it that makes it yours and makes it your character. So in, in Feng Shui, you create the name and the backstory and the melodramatic hook, and those are much more uh, important, really, than all those other things. The other thing that Feng Shui has that, say, Gumshu doesn't is really strong niches, particularly in combat, which is the most important part of a Feng Shui game, and so that if you are picking a killer instead of a supernatural creature, those two characters work very differently in play, but you are not then having to further add another level of tinkering on top of that to make it the absolute best version of the killer or the absolute best starting supernatural creature, that the system, the game, does that for you already so that you will have more fun in play and it avoids the situation where the four out of six or the five out of six players who don't really love the customization process don't have to then drill down and pick what are all the best choices that hopefully through playtesting and trial and error that you have the most fun version of each of those things. Whereas in Gumshoe, you're all investigators with a, a group of uh, abilities, uh, very specialized ones very often. And you might, and whether I have forensic accounting or you have forensic accounting doesn't have the same impact on, on the way the play of the game feels mm -hmm. because you're already all playing sort of, you know, nine degree separated uh, versions of the same sort of investigator character. Mm -hmm. So for that, you do want to make sure that the players have the freedom to decide what those points of differentiation are because the niches aren't as strong. 
Yeah, I think that you can also have an interesting question when you're looking at a game like, say, Twilight 2000, where all the characters are expected to be soldiers, or all the characters, you know, the the all-fighter build, or, or the notion of building a, a game that's all thieves because you're playing an Ocean's Eleven type game. And even if, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a hitter thief, you still have to be basically a thief, not a, not a, not a pure built fighter. And I, I think that that's the sort of game where you tend to want to add more customization possibilities. Uh, ironically, because the, the strength of the pre-gen concept is so foregrounded that you really want to be able to build out you know, what special kind of fighter you are, or what special kind of thief you are, and you can perhaps do that as the designer and come up with 36 different types of thief, all of whom have sneak into a building and pick locks and um, uh, hide in shadows, but then what they do once they're inside is, is, is variant, but it might be easier just to, to build out a skill list and, and let the players pick. I think it's time that we uh, stop doing the homework of doing uh, this segment and move on to the homework of our next segment. often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Height's vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? Locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. Hellgrain <laughs> superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three, even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrane, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. 
The fine leather binding and the smythe sewing of this hut tell us that it's the book hut. And in the book hut, we're going to talk about Bram Stoker, who, of course, is central to our just-advertised Ken Height and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan project, The Dracula Dossier. So the man that sort of started it all in terms of popularizing the vampire in uh, Western uh, entertainment culture has to be Bram Stoker. He's sort of an interesting figure. He uh, was a theater improvisario before he became famous as a writer. He has connections with the Golden Dawn, which I'm sure we'll uh, get into. And uh, he is someone who, like a lot of uh, writers of his period, uh, has the uh, the one towering masterpiece that people still read, and then a lot of other uh, books around it that don't quite rise to that level. So, Ken, if we were to hop in your time machine and go to visit Bram Stoker, what kind of a guy would we be hanging out with? We'd be hanging out with a busy guy. Bram Stoker, starting in about 1878, 1879, starts working for Henry Irving, who is at that time London's uh, greatest, certainly if you asked Henry Irving, London's greatest actor and uh, the owner of the Lyceum Theater in, um, uh, I guess it's in Soho, maybe it's in near Soho. Anyway, it's the Lyceum Theater. That's the larger point I'm trying to make. And <laughs> Bram Stoker was a giant fanboy of Henry Irving, and there's nothing actors love than giant fanboys. And since Stoker was a sort of a supervisory petty clerk or a legal clerk in Ireland, he had that sort of managerial skill set. And Irving said, why don't you come and do all the crummy parts of running a theater? The arts always need arch management. And, and, and Bram Stoker said, do crummy parts for Henry Irving? Where do I sign? <laughs> and it may have been this uh, pl- point that introduced what coolness there may have existed into the Stoker marriage. Because I think Florence Balcom was perfectly happy to um, meet and uh, hang out with Henry Irving every now and again, but I'm pretty sure she did not want to uh, give her husband to Henry Irving and only get him every couple of days. And although later biographers have pr- probably over uh, put uh, more stress on the notion that Florence and uh, and Brahm had an unhappy marriage, and they put a lot of stress on the notion that anyone who is that big a lapdog has to be full of, of subconscious resentment, there is, I hasten to point out, no actual evidence of either argument. The Stokers only had one child, so that speaks at least to something uh, in, a, in an era when that was very unusual. But it could also have just been a matter of Bram Stoker is a really busy guy. And uh, he was. He, would, um, he was managing the theater. He was trying to be a full-time writer with a, uh, a self-sustaining writing career. And he was always off on, uh, on, on Irving's you know, tours. They went to America a lot of times. And he had to do all the advance work and, and, and run the theater. And uh, he, he, he had a lot of stuff going on. So if we can get time with him in our time machine, it's probably going to be uh, seeing him uh, backstage while he's solving about five other problems at the Lyceum. Or maybe we can catch him while he's on tour in America and he's uh, got time to go fanboy Walt Whitman, who is the only person he thought was better than Henry Irving. So what do we know about the process that led him to write Dracula? Well, according to Stoker, who was probably having his little joke, uh, it was e- eating too much dressed crab for dinner that led him to write Dracula. And he had a nightmare, and in that nightmare, he came out and, and wrote Dracula. And Although, you know, many Simon Rogers decisions can be attributed to, <laughs> to stuffed crabs. Yeah, so. certainly, certainly overfeeding the writer's uh, seafood produces masterpieces every time, Simon. Every time. 
Um, I, I, what, what I think happened is he was, uh, in that theatrical environment and he was noticing that vampire plays always did really, really well. And he was writing romances and sort of landscape pieces and sort of nice books. And then I think he thought, I'll bet I could write a horror book, uh, a big gothic that would, that would sell like a gothic, uh, as a novel and sell like a vampire play as a play. And everyone's going to be a, a winner from that. And I think that it may have been commercial designs that sort of put him in the direction of Dracula, but then as he sort of uh, falls in love with the idea, he does a lot more research for Dracula than he does for anything else that he wrote. Um, he spent, depending on how you count it, at least seven years writing and researching Dracula. He doesn't actually start putting the, the story together for, I think, three years. He begins taking notes for it in 1890, and the book is published in 1897, and I think he writes most of it uh, with a calendar for 1893 open in front of him uh, to sort of figure out the dates for the novel. So he's writing it probably in 94. So he's been researching it circa three years and then spends about another two years writing it. So he's he really cares about Dracula. And, and, and I think that what happens is he just falls in love with his characters the way that everyone who reads Dracula does. And since he's closest to them, he's putting a lot of himself into it. And so he puts his adoration for Americans into Quincy Morris and his uh, adoration for Walt Whitman goes in there. He puts obviously his sense of, of Gothic spectacle, which is drawn from uh, seeing all the, all the various plays. He puts some of Henry Irving's stage presence when he's playing villains, uh, Irving, like uh, Jeremy Irons loved a good villain. And so he would do the vamp and he would scare everyone. And I think Stoker would sit, you know, as close as you could sit to that actor acting and think that's the kind of thing I want my book to do. And, uh, and sort of drew that out. Uh, there's a, the author that we've talked about, um, uh, Jim Steinmeier, uh, the historian of magic, has a sadly not nearly as good book called Who Was Dracula? Uh, tries to trace all the sort of human influences on on Dracula uh, through a biography of Stoker. And I think that, uh, that what drives it, though, is, is that interest in, in, in the Gothic and in vampires that begins commercially and then sort of takes him over. He's, a, he's an Irishman, so he's got a, a love of um, the sort of spectral and the magical that stayed boring Englishmen don't have. And he spent a lot of time as a kid sick in bed with his mom telling him ghost stories. And I think that that probably came out of it. Um, so if the Victorian stage is already replete with uh, vampires, if they're as big in pop culture then as they are now, is it the sense of characterization that makes Dracula stand out above those other now forgotten uh, vampires? Well, I think, I think that first of all, it's, uh, it's a novel. It's not a play. And so plays are ephemeral uh, with a very few exceptions. Whereas, more novels tend to stick around just by weight. And I think that the strength of the characterization is it. I think he's one of the first people who has a really strong vampire villain and a really strong vampire hunter. People like to make fun of Van Helsing for being really terrible at his job, but uh, in the, certainly in the context of the time and in the, uh, and, and later on, Van Helsing is the guy who sticks around. Um, and uh, and he's just a really great character. In the actual novel, he's actually kind of a badass. He's not an incompetent. Just like, you know, there, there are jokes about Kirk constantly violating the Prime Directive, but if you, you know, go back, and it's the perception has been the joke rather than what's actually in the source material. Yeah, I mean, certainly as, if you take the source material as what is written, um, he, is, he is, all the other vampire hunters respect and look up to Van Helsing for excellent reason. And he is sort of on the exact cusp between science and uh, true religion 
that you need to be to stop a vampire. That want, either one is not enough. You have to combine them in one sort of um, uh, uh, Nietzschean figure the way that, that Van Helsing does. And I, I think that it's that because a lot of people had written vampire novels that the vampire was pretty great, but all the other characters are weak. Or they'd written a, a novel in which the vampire is sort of an afterthought and the characters are just having some other kind of novel. And I think Stoker's the first guy who, who sort of does it right. I mean, you, Varney the Vampire, you know, no one reads that on purpose, I don't think, anymore, for example. Or, or only as a way of understanding the intellectual spawning ground from which Dracula came. Exactly. It's, it's not a thing that you enjoy unto itself. There, there aren't a lot of, uh, of, string, of, of strident defenders of, of Polidori out there saying, no, the, the, his, his novel, The Vampire, is, is the best one. Everyone agrees that Dracula is the best one. And I think that it's, it's a lot of things. It's, it's the amount of work that he did on it, and I think it's the characterization. And I think it's the notion of having two strong characters who are at loggerheads, but that almost never meet in the course of the story. I think Van Helsing lays eyes on Dracula twice in the novel and, and in a novel of 300 pages. That's amazing. I mean, they're not, they're not having their, uh, will they or won't they kissy face like, you know, Lestat and, um, uh, Lewis do throughout, uh, Anne Rice. Th no, this is a vampire hunter who acts like a hunter and a vampire who acts like a vampire. And it's, it's really strong. Right. Because if he let Dracula get away a bunch of times that he would be a, a, a goof. Yeah, no, they, they, Dracula gets away from them twice, and then they nail him in Romania, just like they ought to. Now, there's a couple of directions we could go, and not a lot of time for the segment left. So, uh, I guess let's, uh, we've talked about the Golden Dawn before. Can you just sort of quickly remind people of his connection to the Golden Dawn? His connection to the Golden Dawn is, is tangential at best. Um, he is a buddy of a guy named Brody Innes, who is a, uh, sort of writer and artist. And he is a friend of Pamela Coleman Smith, uh, and hired her as a centerist for the Lyceum Theater as a scenic designer. And she, of course, designs the tarot for my buddy A.E. Waite. In the social circle of the Golden Dawn, and he was the kind of guy who went out and did things sort of, uh, he was very much a, a maven, a connector. He goes out and he meets people and he has a very active social life. And so it's possible that he went to a meeting or two, but to make him an actual member of the Golden Dawn, is way in advance of the evidence, and even to say that he went to a meeting is speculative. But you can certainly, uh, you know, he's in that he's in that social set of middle class climbers uh, that that made up the Golden Dawn. Okay, uh, enough said on that, Ben. So let's uh, make our final question about the other works of Bram Stoker. Uh, it is uh, a truism about him that uh, nothing else he wrote uh, came up to the the level of uh, Dracula. Uh, is there a second Bram Stoker book that you would recommend uh, people read above the others? I would say that you, there's a number of short stories that are, are really good by him. Things like, I think it's The Judge's House. He wrote one of the first uh, really good uh, mummy novels, which is uh, The Jewel of Seven Stars, which is actually pretty great, although his publisher wanted a, a happy ending, so the you try and get the original one if you can, the 1903. And, of course, uh, you can't uh, talk about Stoker's other works without talking about the absolute mania foaming crazy thing. It's Edgar Rice, it's not Edgar Rice Burroughs, it's William S. Burroughs uh, without the excuse of doing it on purpose that is The Lair of the White Worm, which is just insensibly strange to read. And he wrote it like the year before he died. Uh, and it is, um, it, it's evidence of someone who is just not going to think about the novel even while he's writing it, but has so much 
ability to convey emotional power and horror that you can't stop reading it, even though it's literally making no sense at any point. And, and adapted to film by exactly the right director, by exactly. Ken Russell. Yeah, Ken Russell should, should, should be adapting everything that someone wrote, either while on drugs or uh, dying. I, I think that he's the guy. So maybe the recommendation is uh, check out the film version of Lair of the White Worm. So that's uh, Bram Stoker, the uh, uh, spiritual godfather of your uh, Kickstarter, uh, the Dracula dossier, and I think... Uh, Having summed up, we can move on to our next segment. This episode is also brought to you by Arknight. Now crowdfunding their flat plastic miniatures at a Kickstarter near you. We're talking a brand new type of tabletop RPG mini. You get way more minis for your money than figure sets produced in the standard formats. They're made from transparent plastic with no white edges. The front and back of each mini is drawn in the same silhouette. So you sort of look through the plastic transparency and you see transparentness. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as if. Although they're flat, they don't lay flat. They stand to attention, waiting for the player characters to mow them down on plastic bases. As of this recording, they've already funded and have left stretch goal number one in the dust. And since we record these ads ahead of time, they may well be further than that. As of stretch goal two, the deal will score you 310 minis for $75, including bases and domestic shipping. Arknight plans on doing all sorts of themed packs, including sci-fi, pulp, and cyberpunk over the fullness of time. Are you a retailer? They have retail kits. Are you a publisher? Arknight wants to work with you to produce game pieces for you using this process. So rush on over to Kickstarter to check out flat plastic miniatures from Arknight, funding until November 26th, 2014. The clatter of artisanal gears, the whir of precisely projected flywheels, tell us that we have once more powered up Cannon Robin's recommendation engine, in which we pull on ornately designed backlight levers or twist dials, and recommendations come out for things that we think are cool and good and should be followed up by our beloved listeners. So, Robin, do you want to start us off with a recommendation? Ken, would you like to hear about a really great pulse-pounding South Korean spy thriller? <laughs> Don't I always, Robin? You do. It's called The Suspect. It's a 2013 film by Shin Yeon Wan, and it is uh, one of a whole sort of mini-cycle now of films that uh, take on a North Korean spy operating in South Korea as a sympathetic antagonist, or in this case, sort of semi-antagonist, because he splits the uh, action with a hard-driving, hot-tempered South Korean cop who's trying to track him down in a, a cat-and-mouse game and has a grudge against him because the last time they met, his uh, encounter with him sort of derailed his career completely. But it's a great sort of snaky, twisty, pulse-pounding spy thriller where the North Korean agent is trying to track down the uh, guys who are responsible for uh, killing his uh, wife and child, and the uh, this other character is trying to get him. It's really rich in that even like the 
the sort of the second banana of the cop character has a really interesting character trajectory and is well filled out. So it's not the, uh, often you see a spy thriller with a cat and mouse. It'll just be the main two characters who are fleshed out. And this has more of a universe around it. Uh, unlike other South Korean films, it's the green grassiest mm-hmm. of this uh, little mini cycle of films of which commitment and the Berlin file are other examples. Uh, so this is just a, a Really, it, it takes you a little while to sort of piece what's going on. It it's initially seems like a kind of an elliptical storytelling structure. It requires you to catch up with it and see where it's going. But it's a really effective in that the fights are great. And also uh, some of the car chases are uh, really well executed. And there's a great gag in one of the car chases, a, a little stunt detail that uh, is one of those ones where you see it and you go, why haven't we seen this before? You know, it's just sort of a, I won't wreck it for you, but there's a great little detail in one of the, the car chases where you just uh, really have to hand it to them for coming up with a, a, a thing to happen during a car chase that seems uh, really obvious in retrospect, but nobody's done before. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, something new in the car chase is, is technology to be alerted to. Over and above the fact Korean spy movie you you already have the sale. Why are you waiting to take my money? And I just found out that in America, at least, it is streaming on Netflix. So you can, um, uh, once you get home and finish listening to this podcast, you can jump right onto your Netflix device and watch it. Yes, I watched it on Canadian Netflix, uh, which has a... Uh, Netflix is doing a really good job of keeping us up to date on uh, South Korean cinema and uh, soaps as well. So good for it. Yeah. Hurrah, Netflix. Nicely done. I will recommend a band, MGMT, which is not an obscure band by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they've, they've charted, and they've charted well, especially in uh, the Commonwealth. But I don't know how many bands we've ever recommended on the show, and... I think this is the first. This may be the first. And their album, Congratulations, is an album that is uh, much like Born to Run. It is an album with only one weak song on it. And that is something that almost never happens in this age of the single. So I recommend listening to Congratulations by MGMT on your favorite music service. And uh, if you like Siberian Breaks and don't like the rest of the album, then <laughs> never listen to a musical recommendation from me again. But if, as uh, as I do, you think Siberian Breaks is uh, tonally too different from the rest of the album and too slow uh, to boot, then uh, just ride it out. It'll pass, and the rest of the album will be terrific. So uh, start with uh, the the album Congratulations, and if you like that, listen to everything else they've done. They've got, I think, uh, three or four albums, and they're all really good. And, and they're filed under indie rock? They're filed under indie rock or, or um, uh, psychedelic rock, if the person doing the filing is very old and doesn't know what psychedelic means. <laughs> Or very young and doesn't know what psychedelic means. The, the key point is that they don't know what psychedelic means. So they're misfiled as psychedelic. The misfiled as psychedelic. They are indie, I think, is the technical term, although I don't know what makes them indie anymore because they're on Columbia. They're, for God's they're sake. not Maroon 5, <laughs> yeah. I think is what No, makes the, them the, the point is they're not terrible. And if that's what makes them indie, then good for them. And um, it's also good uh, writing music. I, I find it really good to write to. And there's not a lot you can. Talking about music is like dancing about architecture, as no one ever said. Um, but uh, it does uh, it, it does tend to waste time that could be spent playing MGMT to yourself. So yeah, look for look for the album. Congratulations! Listen to that. Uh, the previous one, Oracular Spectacular, is almost as good, and the new album, MGMT, uh, self-titled as the kids call it, has uh, perhaps my favorite MGMT song on it, a song called "Your Life Is a Lie," which I so far uh, can play about twenty times in a row and not get tired of it. 
um, which is always good for uh, for writing songs. Uh, well, I got good feedback the last time in the recommendation engine when I listed a food ingredient, so mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend kaffir lime leaves. Oh, uh, yes, you should. Yes. You should do um, that. You, yeah, I, I will. I put, All right. I'll proceed to do so. Thank um, you. So, uh These are the, the leaves of a particular uh, lime plant, and you will be able to buy them anywhere that uh, if your city has an Asian grocery store with a produce section, or uh, you may have a big city fancy uh, regular supermarket that has uh, an incredible produce section. So these are, uh, you use them like bay leaves in that you put them in a stew or a casserole or, or some other similar dish, and then you fish them out afterwards. They're not edible, but they suffuse the uh, meal with this uh, lovely tangy uh, sort of a uh, limey uh, flavor and uh, the other great thing about them is they're uh, pretty inexpensive and you just take the ones that you don't use since you're only using maybe four to six leaves for any given dish and then put them in a freezer bag put the rest in the freezer and they will uh, keep uh, for an incredibly long time and so for your dollar 69 investment uh, you'll just be able to pull them out of the freezer and they defrost right away when you put them in the casserole and uh, so they're a uh, uh, highly recommended uh, part of your uh, flavoring agent uh, repertoire especially if you're making thai food um, much better than lime zest yes they're i i, I think that's the uh, the cuisine that they are native to but of course if you uh like to mix up your flavors, you can put them in all manner of things. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you can. Um, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell you, if you are making Thai food and you don't have kaffir lime leaves, you are starting without a finger. You you are nothing if not a classicist. If not, uh, I will recommend an author after a food ingredient, um, Ross Thomas, who is was turned on to me by Alpha Gamer of the Pacific Coast, uh, Carl Rigney. And uh, Ross Thomas is, I think, best described as who you read when you have run out of Elmore Leonard, in that his novels take place in the same sort of universe of people whose reach exceeds their grasp. But the difference is that more of his characters know what is going on than just the main one. That There, there are often uh, two or three characters who are smarter than the room. That does not necessarily mean that the room is not still horribly dangerous. And all of his characters have... A very straightforward sort of of ethics. <laughs> uh, there, there is a series uh, that he does called the Wu and Durant series, in which uh, Artie Wu, who is the 34th in line to the uh, throne of England and a claimant to the imperial uh, throne of China, and who is basically a con man, and his uh, buddy, the Australian Quincy Durant, uh, their superpower is that they will never betray each other. And in a Ross Thomas novel, that is quite a superpower indeed. <laughs> but he's also got some slightly more conventional spy stories, uh, um, the McCorkle uh, and Padillo series. Uh, McCorkle owns a bar. Uh, his business partner is Padillo. Padillo keeps dragging him into spy adventures. He wants no part of it. Um, there are a number of things. He was uh, Thomas was a labor organiz- uh, organizer, and he was a journalist for a while. So his political novels and his... Uh, and his crime novels have that sort of sense of, of realism that you get from actually having touched dead bodies and actually knowing where they are buried at one point or another. So pretty much anything that you read by Ross Thomas is good. I just very recently read Briar Patch, which he wrote about a it's sort of a daylight go- a daylight noir about a corrupt Sunbelt city. And imagine my delight when I discovered that the nameless city was very clearly Oklahoma City, where uh, Ross Thomas was born and where I was raised. So. Uh, I had a, a, a joy beyond joys of Ross Thomas and I coming together in that. 
But he's also got a series um, that he wrote as Oliver Bleak, uh, starring a guy named Philip St. Ives, who is the guy who is trusted both by kidnappers and insurance companies. So he is the guy whose job is to bring the ransom money. And that that single job of being a go-between had turned him into several kind of interesting novels, as Because turns complications out. presumably ensue. <laughs> complications do indeed ensue. Uh, he has a, a novel called The Eighth Dwarf, which is a blackly humorous novel set in the uh, destroyed world uh, world of uh, post-war Europe. So that's uh, that's pretty great by itself. I, I mean, it, it's just all good. Um, I've never read a bad paragraph by Ross Thomas, much less a bad novel. So I would recommend hunting him down and his heirs and assigns. He is sadly no longer with us, but his, whoever has the Ross Thomas estate is not an idiot, and therefore it is all available on your Kindle in your electronic format that the kids love so much now. My final recommendation of this segment is a book called Civil War Land in Bad Decline by George Saunders. He's uh, got uh, quite a lot of acclaim building around him in uh, literary writing circles, but his stuff could, uh, if it were shelved in the fantasy section, we would claim him as our own. Civil War Land in Bad Decline is a series of short stories and a novella, and many of them seem at first to be set in our real world and often feature sort of beleaguered protagonists who are stuck in grinding bureaucratic institutions, whether that's like a terrible theme park as in the title story. But as you continue to read, you see that there are things about this reality as described that are just ever so slightly off and begin to suggest that you're uh, visiting an alternate or a heightened uh, world. And, uh, for example, the prevalence of uh, gruesome murder and, and horrible accident is much higher than uh, you know, statistically you would face in the in uh, population. <laughs> and uh, ghosts show up. Some of them have a magical realist uh, flavor to them. And the novella that comprises the main part of the end part of the book is uh, a post-apocalyptic story uh, with a journey where people, a certain percent of the population has uh, mutated and are being basically treated as a new uh, uh, slave persecuted class. The other thing that's very interesting about him, he's often compared uh, by literary reviewers to Kurt Vonnegut, which is because they probably haven't read Jack Vance. And so <laughs> as you're reading partway through, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is someone who has taken a lot of Vance and made it his own and translate. So a lot of the uh, discussions about bureaucratic procedures will be very similar and also the uh, kind of uh, bleak, mordant viewpoint, although I think at the end of the day, Saunders is uh, perhaps more hopeful than uh, Vance. So uh, these very much take that uh, rarefied uh, Jack Vance uh, voice or little aspects of it and translate it into his own uh, world and worldview. So I'd highly recommend Civil War Land in Bad Decline by George Saunders. And Ken, your last recommendation? I think my last recommendation will be for a trilogy that none of the authors knew they were writing. I think that if you read Osama by Lavi Tidar, in which a literary detective is hunting for the author of a series of pulp adventure novels starring a fictional terrorist named Osama bin Laden. And then you read Zeitgeist by Bruce Sterling, which is a spy novel set in 1999 about a very mysterious set of incursions into uh, the spy world and possibly into our world. And you finish it off with Finity by John Barnes, which is an alternate history novel in which America was destroyed in a number of alternate histories, and characters from all of those histories begin to meet, uh, never in America. You will 
find why I called those a trilogy, and they are all individually well worth reading. I don't want to spoil anything by going into any further, and they all have their own style, they have their own feel. Lavi Tidar is not Bruce Sterling, is not John Barnes, but uh, if you if you read all three of those, you will sort of begin to understand why I have been so very interested in things overlaying our world, and these are some of the authors that I, I chased uh, when I was interested in that, or who chased me after writing them. So I want to just call that a trilogy and let everyone else find out why I said that was. Well, with that tripartite recommendation, I think we can power down the recommendation engine. It uh, sort of goes into a low hum mode. It'll be on standby for a while, and we'll bring it back in a future episode. The quacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tells us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle he uses to plunge back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it at the command of the shadowy Time Incorporated. And this week, their request is a simple three-word one, save Marie Antoinette. So, uh, Ken, for the benefit of listeners who are not compiling their own time mission dossier, uh, who was... Marie Antoinette, and why will it be difficult to save her? Marie Antoinette was the daughter of the emperor, or empress, I guess, technically, of uh, both, really, of Austria, of Francis I and Maria Theresa. She was a lovely young girl, uh, born in 1755, and married off to the Dauphin of France, the crown prince of France, at the tender age of 15. Uh, an age at which a young girl always looks forward to marrying the gouty, inbred, failed descendant of the Bourbon line. But <laughs> since she was a Habsburg, I guess she figured that it was going to be one way or the other. Comes with the territory. Unlike most Habsburgs, she was attractive and not particularly mean and awful. And so uh, already she'd beat the lottery. And Louis XVI for Bourbon was also not god-awful. He was certainly not particularly bright, but he, you know... He, he was not a genuine uh, sociopath the way that his ancestors were. So, you know, possibilities could have possibled, and if they'd just been two ungainly rich people who got married, they probably would have lived a long and happy life together. But sadly, uh, Louis became king of France, and then France got tired of the Bourbons and monarchy and all kinds of things. Pretty and much the heads like, of a whole bunch of people. And, and, pretty much all at once in 1789. And eventually decided that merely being uh, the former king of France was the kind of thing that made you a national security risk. So they grabbed uh, Louis and Marie and put them into prisons, separate prisons, and lopped off their heads in 1793. And it was the post-prisoning that will be difficult to rescue her from. Because uh, once you've decided someone is a national security risk and you're a totalitarian state, you tend to look at the prison very carefully. And before we move on to the rescue itself, you've uh, said in previous episodes that she's been much traduced by history. So can you make the case for her having gotten a bad rap? Now, you have to keep in mind that she is by no means a Necker or any of these Swiss technocrats who are brought in to fix the finances. She is a 15-year-old girl who is trained to make a good queen. But when she gets to France, she is one of those people who says... There's an awful lot of money being blown on me, 
and I see the budget, and there's not enough money being blown on, oh, I don't know, the Navy. Maybe we should take some of my money or the, the royal money and give it to the Navy. What do you guys think about that? And so that's the sort of response from one's monarch that I think you should encourage, uh, all the way to encouraging them not to be a monarch, necessarily. The famous, let them eat cake, is not an expression of contempt to the masses. It is a uh, artifact, first of all, of translations, probably not just between French and English, but between French and German. And uh, her question was not so much, you know, if they're out of bread, then they should be eating cake. Her, her question was, well, all right, if there's no bread, why isn't there no backup? Don't we also have supplies of, of these other things? And it, it was more of an int- a, a try to find out what's going on with France's agriculture as opposed to a, well, just go to the cake store and everything will be fine type response. It's still ignorant, but it's ignorant from a place of wanting to know, not from a place of being a jerk about poor people. Now, she is not a, you know, Democrat avant la lettre. She is a aristocrat. She's a Habsburg. Um, and she's a, a young girl who has never actually, you know, done any heavy lifting. But she is not a, a particularly contemptible human being and was obviously uh, very devoted to making her, her marriage work, making her adopted country like her and like uh, the institution of monarchy, which was her job, and also trying to sort of keep everything on an even keel. She is not ignorant of the criticisms about her. Uh, she felt them very seriously, and she wanted to try to keep everything on the down low. That's why she, uh, we talked about the, the affair of the necklace previously. That's why she rejected the necklace. She was not so idiotic as to accept a necklace that cost a substantial fraction of the royal budget as a, as a gift. So, on to the rescue. How do you save her? <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the, the time to save Marie Antoinette is between the fall of the monarchy and her being tossed into prison. If you have to get her out of prison, there's going to be an awful lot of violence, which is not really my a specific goal. There, There's too many guards and too many people interested for me to just drink one guy uh, under the table. Right. And, and Time Incorporated rarely lets you have the laser crossbow. Rare, rarely, almost never do I get, the, only on my Wookiee-based missions, which so far have never happened because there aren't any Wookiees. Um, there was a plot planned by the Count Axel von Fersen, who may or may not have been uh, one of Marie Antoinette's boyfriends, depending on how you, uh, on, on how you color their uh, friendship. And the king is just being uh, a doofus and not deciding anything. But I think if it's possible to play not so much on Marie, but on Count Axel to get the queen away and sell it to the king as a you have to chivalrically get your bride out of danger type approach, he might have still diddled about whether or not he was going to leave. But but she might be talking, but she... She previously rejected a plan that had her leaving without the king, but I, I think that there's enough arguing back and forth that with uh, with with a, with, a, with a couple of good vintages and the cooperation of Count Axel, you could probably get her out uh, during that uh, period in uh, 1791. Um, this is the this is the famous uh, cart at Varennes when the cart stops because it's loaded down with too much garbage and a peasant recognizes the king because he's on the money. And so they're like, look, it's the king. So if the king is not there, they could probably have even gotten out even under the terrible conditions that they actually made the escape. And if they make the escape a couple of days earlier, the way that the count plans it, she should be able to get out because at that point they had not yet put uh, the monarchs, the former monarchs, the citizens capet under uh, close supervision. So uh, what things can go wrong with this plan that you have to watch out for? Well, I mean, there is the problem that 
when you're trying to move royalty, they want to bring everything. And so you have to sort of make sure that the luggage is kept to a minimum. At, at the very least, using the time uh, machine to get the luggage sent in a different direction uh, and sort of, you know, go back in time and uh, interfere in my own plan, which is always very risky. But if you can send the, the big heavy luggage full of royal stuff off on a different road and convince everyone that they agreed to go on the first road, then the count and the baron and the queen and uh, the little boy can take off uh, in a much lighter and less belabored carriage down a, a different path. Um, you, you know, use the inherent confusion of a time loop to, uh, to create a diversion, that kind of thing. Now, when you saw this assignment, did you think this is one of Time Incorporated sort of humanitarian missions to, to redress a, a blot on history and therefore on our view of human nature? Or are there positive consequences to the time stream beyond uh, letting uh, this woman live longer? I, I think that the positive consequence to the time stream that comes from Marie Antoinette's uh, survival is pretty much just the humanitarian one. The impact that she's going to... I mean, it's not going to make the uh, countries of Europe hate the revolution either more or less if she gets out. Um, her execution is seen, even at the time, as a bridge too far by the revolution, even by some people in France. And so you might have a slightly more popular revolution in France and a slightly less unpopular revolution overseas. But once you start fighting shooting wars over it, which you're going to do one way or the other, you're, you can count on uh, national sentiment to, to drive the war in the same direction. It, it's pretty much just got to be a... Um, maybe the uh, Time Incorporated is tired of lost Dauphin conspiracies, or maybe they want to do anything at all to prevent Louis the, which one is it, 17th? He's the 18th, right? From becoming um, king in uh, 1814, because he was a terrible king. So uh, it may just be to screw him out of a throne that we're saving uh, Marie and the, and the Dauphin, in which case it's worth it all by itself. If that happens, if you have a genuinely popular Dauphin who is raised to the monarchy in 1814, and Marie Antoinette there as his beloved mother, who uh, cherished him during his exile years, to whisper in his ear and say, now this is, this is how your dad lost it, don't make everyone mad at you, you might actually have a stable French monarchy, which means you eliminate Napoleon III, you eliminate all the various crazy republics, and you maybe prevent uh, Germany from unifying because you've got a, uh, a sensible uh, government in France as opposed to Napoleon uh, Bonaparte III for Bismarck to um, uh, play everyone in Germany off of. And so that might be a positive outcome because you, uh, maybe by saving Marie Antoinette, I've just talked myself into this. This is the power of Marie Antoinette, by the way. Yes. You might have prevented World War I. And what's not go. to love about that? And again, this is, again, more about screwing Louis XVIII than it is about saving Marie, but if you can both help a nice Austrian girl uh, to safety with a guy who may or may not be her lover and also prevent a, uh, a, a the bourbon who embodies the statement that they have learned nothing and forgotten nothing uh, from being king, then you are doing pretty well. So I am I am in favor of this mission for both reasons now. Okay. Well, I think that uh, well solves our, uh, our questions, and uh, we now understand why exactly... Time Incorporated would have you do that, so it's time to uh, declare yet another podcast a victorious podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Arknight, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, 
and Ken's Dracula dossier Kickstarter for Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Get a free pass on your homework by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or white worm lair by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>